So, the book of James, now if you're new to the Bible, the Bible is kind of broken down into sort of two sections. There's a first part of it is sort of the story of the Jews, and it's about a group of people that are set apart unto God. They are supposed to look different and act different, and they're supposed to be priests to the rest of the world sharing the message of God. And they are waiting on something. The whole uh, first part of the Bible is talking about this Messiah who's going to come and kind of setting up this idea that God has this bigger plan. And then there's a, we talked about a couple weeks ago, a, a gap in there in between the first part and the second part of the Bible of about 400 years where God is not necessarily super active. He's not necessarily super uh, speaking to a lot of people or, or, or kind of intervening in history. There's a silence there for a little while. And then the New Testament the, the second part of the Bible, this is really the Christian uh, section where Christ comes, uh, is the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for. And so this is how the Bible kind of breaks down. It's like the, the preparation time, waiting on the Messiah. Then the New Testament is the Messiah coming. It's Jesus' story. And it's the story of how the church begins and how uh, the church begins to worship Jesus and to take his message and spread it out throughout the world. Now, it's a little confusing because if you're just opening up a Bible for the first time, some of the the uh, books in the second part of the Bible, in the Christian section, are uh, named after a certain people, and some of them are named after the person who wrote them, okay? So you might have a book, uh, Ephesians, written to the people who live in Ephesus. Well, it's actually written to an area, but they called it uh, Ephesians, right? Galatians, written to the people, Corinthians, written to those people that live in Corinth. Then you have letters written by people. So you have a letter by James, you have a couple uh, from other authors, Paul writes a couple. You have Peter. Some of them are named after the person who wrote them. Some of them are named after the people they were written to. James is one that was written by James, okay? Not to a certain people. It's not the James, Jamesian people. It's James wrote this letter, and he tells us in the beginning who it's written to, but he's the author. And it may surprise you that James is the brother of Jesus, because somewhere along the way, it got a little bit out of whack. There's, a, there's a, um, a theology out there that you may have grown up with or you may have grown up in a tradition that believes this, that, that believes that Mary was a virgin her entire life and you believe that Jesus has no brothers. Um, the, the Bible says that uh, when uh, Jesus came into the world, that the angel told Mary, uh, you know, or told Joseph, don't consummate your marriage with your wife until after Jesus is born. But then after Jesus was born, the Bible tells us that Jesus had half-brothers. He had brothers from his stepfather, Joseph, and his mother, Mary. And so he was just like us. He had a family that he grew up in, and he had brothers that were, you know, his, his brothers. Um, and so you might be wondering, you might be thinking about, well, this seems a little bit weird. If Jesus' brother is writing a portion of the Bible, is there some sort of inside thing happening? Like, You've got Jesus trying to create this religion and then his brother comes alongside to bolster this thing up. This seems kind of weird. Maybe this is some sort of like a cult thing. Why would a family member be writing part of this Bible that we're supposed to be? This, this seems like an odd uh, thing. And you, you might be right to ask that question. But generally when people are uh, making things up or they're trying to create a cult, you have like a couple reasons to create a cult, right? You, you want power or you want money or you want multiple wives. That's generally why people create a cult. They just, so I want you to know James did not have multiple wives. He did not accrue a whole bunch of power. He, uh, in fact, died as a martyr. And he didn't accrue a whole bunch of money. So you're asked the question, well, why would James write this, uh, this testimony? You know, why would he write this letter to the church to encourage them to live in a specific way? 
seems kind of weird because he didn't really seem to get much out of it. In fact, he, he died very soon after this letter was written. Okay? He, he gave up almost everything to follow Jesus and to be part of the first church. And you're like, this is crazy. Right? In, Matthew, or, sorry, in John chapter 7, uh, it actually talks about Jesus' family as he begins his ministry. And it says he was passing through his hometown. And it said, nobody believed in him. And it actually it even says in, in John chapter 7 that even his brothers didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, that he, well, he was who he, said, who he said he was. Now, I just want you to stop and think about this for a second. What would it take for you to believe that your sibling was the Christ? I mean, just think about it for a second. Like, my brother is great. I have one brother. He's five years younger than me. He's great. I'm never going to worship him. You, you might have different siblings. There's probably one more likely that you'd be like, well, this one's pretty good. This one, no way, right? This is the Antichrist, right? This one is... We'll get to that in another sermon sometime. Um, and I want you to take a step back and think about it. This letter is written by the brother of Jesus who grew up with Jesus. If there's anybody who knows the dirt, who knows the inside story, who knows the untold stuff that, you know, that families don't always share or talk about, it's James. And if James can find faith in Christ, you're asking the question, well, how? How could he possibly find faith in Christ? How in the world could he go from, this is my brother who I grew up with, to this is my Lord and Savior? That's an incredible change in someone's way of looking at one of their siblings. And in fact, I look at this and it gives credibility to what James is writing here. If James can make that transition with Jesus, if even the brother of Jesus is convinced that he is the Lord and the Christ, man, what, why, how could I not be convinced? If James grew up alongside Jesus and he was watching his entire life and he could still find a way to worship him as his Lord... I don't have an excuse. None of us do, right? It, it brings incredible, uh, incredible weight to James's uh, story about how he became a Christian and how he found himself leading the church. And so just to kind of give you a, another idea, there's three Jameses in the New Testament. There's the disciple James, James and John, sons of Zebedee, right? So they're the sons of thunder. They're the guys who join right at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. That James is martyred very early on in the church. Okay, so he's one of the first people that gets martyred in, um, in Acts. And martyr is just like somebody who dies for their faith or dies for the cause. Right? So he, he actually gives his life up for the, for the church early on. There's also another James, James, son of Alphaeus, which I think I have a cousin from Georgia who's James, son of Alphaeus. Um, just sounds like a weird... <laughs> like, so there's that James, and then there's the third James. It's Jesus' brother James. This is the James who writes this book. And, um, and the thing that changed in James's account, so from John chapter 7, where it says his brothers didn't believe in him, all the way to Acts chapter 12 and chapter 15, where James becomes a big deal in the church. All of a sudden, he's in a prominent role. The thing that changes in that time is it says in 1 Corinthians that Jesus, after he died and was resurrected, showed himself to about 500 people. He was on the earth for 40 days after he was resurrected, and he taught the remnant of people who were his followers to become the church. 
And one of the people that he showed himself to was James. So you're asking, what's the transition of going from a, this is just my brother to this is my Lord? James encountered Jesus after the resurrection, and that is what changed him through and through. That is what caused him to give himself over to the church, to give everything he had to the church, and to eventually die on behalf of the church in, in his faith. And so it's kind of a, a big deal to listen to what James has to say because he knew Jesus his whole life, he was affected by the resurrection, and he became a believer in his own, own brother. Now, you might be reading, uh, like let's say you were watching the uh, Discovery Channel, they were doing something on the Bible. You're going to hear stuff out there that these letters that the New Testament is written in like 300 AD and, you know, Jesus died in like 30 AD and we can't necessarily... I want you to know this letter is one of the earliest ones that it was written in the New Testament. And it's around 45 to 55 AD. So essentially it's 10 to 15 years after Jesus has passed on when James writes this letter. And it's one of the first letters that gets written and circulated it's uh, ahead of most of the Gospels, ahead of most of the letters that Paul wrote. It's ahead of most of the other stuff that's in the New Testament. It's one of the most early uh, letters that we have, and it's one of the, most, the first ones that began to be circulated and taught to the people. And you'll see why in just a second why we know that. Um, so don't buy it when they say these letters are written in 300. Not a chance. Somewhere between 45 and 55 AD. Um, all right, so let me get into the, into the passage here. All right, so James, I like James because he's a little bit East Coast, I feel like, all right? He does not pull his punches. He's not dancing around anything. He launches into this, like, just straight up. So this is what he says. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, right? James, a servant of God and of the, what? Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to start from the beginning and I'm going to let you know, I serve and my Lord is Jesus Christ. Now that word Christ is a very important word. It's a very, it has a lot of meaning to the Jews. When he uses that word, he uses it specifically. He's saying the Messiah that we've been waiting for is Jesus. This is the one that I have put my faith in that I'm going to serve. I just want you guys to know from the start, this is what, who I am and this is what's going on with me. He says to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Okay, so Jesus, when he, uh, he died and he was resurrected and he came, he spent 40 days with his, with his followers. There was hundreds of people that saw him after the resurrection that knew that he was resurrected. Uh, he spent time with them. Then he ascended into heaven. Then we pick up the story in Acts chapter 1, right, where Jesus uh, goes into heaven and then all of a sudden he tells the, the new church, the new believers, to wait for the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, they receive the Holy Spirit, uh, it's crazy. There's this, they're all up in this upper room and they're praying and all of a sudden the, this wind comes flying through the room and they all receive what look like tongues of fire over their head. They stand out on a porch. They start speaking in all kinds of different languages to all the people that were in town. And we know at the time there was a festival where people from all over the place, all the Jews from all over the world were there and they heard this message that, that they preached on the first day in their own language, right? So every person there heard it in their own language. Then Peter stands up and he gives a sermon and he basically says, I want you to understand this is what we're about and this is what the, the important thing is. And he tells all about Jesus and about what he went through and who he was. And then he challenges the Jews. He says, actually, you guys killed him 
And now you need to receive and kind of back up and understand this was the Christ that you killed. And now we want you to join us. And you think that would be a terrible message. You guys killed Jesus. Now receive him as your Lord. And it says 3,000 people drop to their knees and accept Jesus as their Lord. At that time, all of those people from all over the world went back to their homes. They took the message of the gospel of Jesus coming to save humanity to everywhere that they had come from. But God had called the first church to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. He had said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, out to the ends of the earth. This is what I want the church to do. I want you to witness to Jesus' death and resurrection out to the ends of the earth. I want you to challenge people to follow me, to be baptized, to obey the things that I have taught you. Okay? And we see the church begin, and for the first seven chapters, they stay in Jerusalem. They just stay where they are. They don't, they're like, we know we're supposed to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and out to the ends of the earth. But we don't like the Samaritans. We don't want to go over there. And we don't want to go out to the ends of the earth. We've got a good thing happening in our church right here. Right? We like what's going on in, in town. And you know what? Judea is even a little bit outside of our comfort zone. We're just going to stay here. And we're just going to do our thing right here together. Um, and to be honest with you, that's still a problem for a lot of churches. It's still a problem. We kind of sometimes get insulated and get focused in, inward. And so it says in uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, uh, A great trial broke out against the church, and people were scattered from Jerusalem as they ran for their lives. And it says, And they settled in Judea, Samaria, and out to the ends of the earth. And everywhere they went, they took the gospel with them. And so when James starts this book... This is about 45 to 55 AD. The church is scattered in persecution under a trial. And they've now kind of run to all these different places. And so he starts his, his letter here by saying, look, this letter is for all the people who are scattered under persecution throughout the land. The 12 tribes, the Jews who are now Christians, scattered among the nations. Scattered all over the place. Taking the gospel with them, but not necessarily in good shape, they've run for their lives. They're not necessarily in a good spot. They've, they've kind of run away from persecution, and they find themselves under trial. And wherever they go, essentially the, the story of the first church is that it would sort of pop up in one place, and then it would kind of get squashed down, and it would pop up somewhere else and get squashed down. And before you know it, the church had expanded throughout the entire Mediterranean, and it had kind of made it out to the whole ends of the earth that, in fact, under trial, the church did really really well. It was almost like there was this God in charge of all this who was just kind of making people follow through on what he had called them to do, whether they were going to want to do it or not. He was going to push them to do it. So you ask the question, did he bring the trial on them or did he allow the trial? Either way, he used it to take the gospel out to the ends of the earth, okay? And so he says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. What's up, everybody? How are you all doing? And then he doesn't, this is why I said I love him, he's East Coast. He doesn't pull his punches at all. He talks right to their specific situation. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Oh, this is sounding good. This is good. I like this. I'm, I'm all about it. Tell me about pure joy. This sounds real. I want pure joy in my life. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. What? what, what? <laughs> I don't think James really understood joy, right? I mean, as you're reading this, you're like, wait. When we experience, this is pure joy. I used to live in Jerusalem. It was great. 
the church was amazing. All my friends were there. We had a great time. We used to we'd hang out in each other's homes. We were eating together. We were just sharing the God. We were healing people. It was amazing. Now I'm scattered, living as, a, uh, as an outsider in a new community because I had to run for my life. I'm not necessarily pumped about the new situation that I'm living in. And you're telling me this is pure joy? If that's pure I don't think you understand what pure joy is, James. I'm pretty sure our definitions of pure joy are a little bit different. Right? And, and James is very clear. He says, consider pure joy, my brothers. He says, when you face trials of many kinds. So he, he kind of sets it up and says, look, you're going to face trials. They're going to be various different kinds of things that you're going to deal with. Okay? He, he basically starts without pulling his punches and says, I want you to understand that as a follower of Jesus, you're going to have to figure out how to deal with the trials that are going to come at you in this life. I think sometimes people have this idea that I follow God and I do the right things for him and then he protects me from all of the bad things that are out there. We have this idea that God is like this cosmic bouncer who's supposed to keep bad things away from us. And he stands between us and bad stuff that's going to happen and he bounces that out of our life right? That we do the right stuff. We follow the right formula. We pray enough. We go to church. We serve other people. We give our money. We, we orient our life around Christ, and we're supposed to be protected from all the things that we don't want to have in our life. All the trials and tribulations and difficulties, they're not supposed to be part of what we're dealing with on a daily basis. And in fact, I've talked with so many people who've walked away from a relationship with God because they've gone through a trial and on the other side of it, they can't reconcile the idea that God would allow them to go through that trial. But James acts like this will be what your life is. You will deal with trials no matter what. They will look different from each person in the room, but all of us will be dealing with something at some point, And there are going to be various kinds of things coming at us all the time. And we're going to have to learn how to live and have pure joy even when we are dealing with, with trials. It's hard, right? I, as a pastor, I, I used, used to be a youth pastor. Now I'm, now I'm a, I don't even know what I am. What am I now? A lead pastor? A, a, I'm the only pastor at this church. I don't know. There's a big difference between working with students and working with you lovely people. <laughs> You're working with students, uh, stuff comes and goes. It, it's fast. You deal with a trial, but it's, it's over quickly a lot of times. It's something that's temporary, or it's a new reality that a kid starts to live in, but they're, but they're malleable. They're, they, they respond quickly, and they kind of change, and you just kind of walk with them through stuff, and, and then it's, it's over. It's either a new reality that they're living in, or, or it's something that has changed, and now they've moved on to another thing. And so as long as you can kind of hold on, and ride those things out, you can walk alongside of students pretty easily through some of the most difficult things because they just seem to be over quicker. Adults, man, you guys aren't that way at all. There's a lot of people that are dealing with chronic stuff, dealing with brokenness, relationships that don't seem to be put back together right. They're dealing with, uh, with pain, with loss. Uh, and it's a different kind of burden to carry as a pastor to adults. The, the trials seem to be a lot harder. The trials seem to be a lot darker. The trials seem to be a lot longer sometimes. And I want you to know that James tells us that we can have joy 
in the midst of trials, and that in fact we should expect to be going through trials because this world is so broken and messed up. It's not the way it ought to be, right? But that we can persevere and that we can find joy even when we struggle with things. That's what he's calling them to. In like the first or second sentence of the letter, he doesn't waste any time. He doesn't pull his punches. He's just like, look, I just want you guys to understand. Consider it joy when you face trials of many types. He's like, this is going to be your normal now. You need to find a way to, uh, to worship God in the midst of this and find joy even when you struggle. That in fact, the world needs to see this on display in your life as you go through difficulties. You're like, okay, thanks a lot, James. That's really heavy. Like, thanks for opening that. Like, Paul, when he writes his letters, he's like, hey, by the way, it's great to see you guys. I'm really glad. Last time was awesome. Can you guys bring my, my tunic next time you come visit me? Like, hey, say hello to this person. Hey, I remember this time when we were together. It was really great. James is like, uh, let me get right to the point. Consider it pure joy when you start struggling. Great. Well, here we go. So then he goes on. He says, uh, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind. Because... So consider pure joy. Why? Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so he kind of lines up this idea of why we need to find joy in these trials or how, essentially. And the idea is that it brings perseverance into our life. Now, I don't know, uh, I'm not a really great example of this, but you know, this is how you build muscle, right? You have resistance, right? What, what's so funny? Just, are you saying I'm not? I'm not <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you have resistance in your life. That's how you build muscle. You, you, when you work out, I'm, this is what I'm told. When you work out, uh, you lift weights so that you get strong, right? You can able to persevere through more when you are strong, when you're fit. Right, so you know, you talk about. I, I did play football for a while, so I can talk about that. Uh, you know, you'd have to get in shape for the season, right? And so then you'd have to start running extra, and then they would make you go up hills and down and up and down until you threw up every single practice, right? Like, you'd have to go and lift weights two or three times a day. This is why I didn't make it all the way through high school on the football team, just like through freshman sophomore year. Um, perseverance is what comes from times when we are facing tension, when we're facing difficulty. This is the thing that James wants us to have in our relationship with God, that he wants us to have this perseverance. He says, let perseverance finish its work. There's, there's, there's something happening in us where we can kind of walk away from difficulties or we can hide from them or we can, we can play the game where we just basically go and, and stick our head in the sand and pretend like nothing's happening. Right? This escapism kind of is a thing where like, hey, you know what? I'm going through a difficult time, but I'm just going to play video games until I'm out of it. Right? Or I'm just going to go see three movies a week. Or I'm just going to sit in my room with Netflix. And I'm just going to pretend like nothing is happening. And James says these trials come along and that God uses these trials to make you strong. To make you, to give you the ability to persevere. Right? So think about a runner who's been running, you know, again, this is something I'm not familiar with. Uh, I, I don't actually believe that anyone likes to run. <laughs> I just, I'm sorry, you, you just can't win me on that. Like, maybe you like the feeling after you're done running, or maybe you like the results of running, but just running is just terrible. But like, think about a marathon runner who's just pushing through to the very end of the race, right? Who's got that last leg where they're just whipped, 
right? They can't do that unless they have learned how to persevere, unless they're strong enough to get through it. And James is saying, look, in this world where we're scattered all over the place and the church is in peril and things aren't going really well, man, we need Christians who have substance, who are strong, who will finish what God has started. Like that's what he's still calling our church to look like. He's saying we need strong Christians who can push through some of the trials and difficulties of the world. We need, we need people of substance who will, you know, draw people into this thing and show them that there's a better way to live. And I think when we go through trials, the thing that we actually worship, the thing that is our focus in life comes very clear to us in that time. Because when we go through a trial, our question is just always, like, is, is my focus going to be on Jesus or is my focus going to be on something else in my life that, that I'm worshiping? A lot of us go to the bottle or we medicate ourselves or we escape or we do things that aren't focused on God and James is saying, hey, you got a chance here when you go through a trial to work your faith to a strong position to grow in who you are and to stay focused. And you've seen this happen both ways. You've seen people go through a trial and get absolutely crushed in it and come out the other side just awful. And you've also seen people who've gone through a trial and you have no idea how they have that amount of faith and the amount of focus on God as they struggle through something. They like, they like become radiant. They like become beautiful to the world. Like someone who's struggling with something and still focused on God and still worshiping Him through that and still saying, you know what? Good times, bad times, I'm still going to stay focused on Jesus through this trial. You know those people. You've seen that happen. That is good for the world to see Christians struggling through trial but still having a faith that, that walks them through that. And I'm not talking about a fake thing or you know, like a, you know, I'm going to smile and make it all right, or I'm going to, I'm going to lie about what, how I'm feeling just to kind of appease all the people. I'm talking about a real faith that, that sustains people through difficulty. That's what James is talking about. And he's saying, you, it's pure joy. You can let this finish its work. Understand that when a trial comes into your life, as difficult as it may be, that God will still use it to make you strong. That he loves you, despite whatever it is that you're dealing with. And he will... Take whatever circumstances you have in your life and he will turn them for your good. He will create something beautiful in your life as you deal with a trial. And the goal is to become mature and complete, not lacking anything. Man, imagine if that could be said of every person in our church. Man, this is a church of people who are mature and complete, who persevere, who have an incredibly strong faith. Just imagine what that would do to a, a community. And there are people living like that all over the place. So he goes on. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. He says, essentially, the first place that you need to learn to turn when you go through trial is not your parents, and it's not your family, and it's not medication or alcohol or escapism. It's not any of these things. The first place to turn when you don't understand what's happening, when you can't make sense of the trial that you're dealing with, it's to Jesus. That's the place to turn. And if you lack the wisdom to understand what's going on, if you can't get through it, if you feel like you're going to get crushed, that you turn to God and you ask Him for wisdom. And it says, He gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And He says, 
Basically, God is like this father. And I know we have all had great fathers. <laughs> so sometimes when we talk about this, it's a hard thing to talk about. But God is like a perfect father who wants to give good gifts to his kids. Until you've been in that position, until you've been a parent, you just really don't understand this concept. Once you realize there's someone else on this earth that you would selflessly give your life for, right? You say that when you marry someone, you say like, I will give my life for this person, but you really understand it when you have a child. This is how God shows himself to us. He says, I'm like a father who wants to give good gifts to my children. And if you come to me in your time of need and you ask for me to give you wisdom, to stand with you, to be there for you, I'll be there for you. This is why those people struggling with trial who are radiant, who find faith, who get stronger, who learn prayer in a different way, who understand truths differently now that they've gone through things. This is why this happens. Because they go to God and they ask for Him. They don't go straight to whatever other thing there is. They go straight to God. He continues on, he says, But when you ask, oh, here's a caveat, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Blown and tossed by the wind. The person, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is a double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now listen, James, uh, as we read through this, he's, a lot of times this book is called the Proverbs of the New Testament. He kind of jumps around a little bit. So as you're kind of paying attention, sometimes he'll give you something that's like just a really pithy little saying and it's just something to kind of hang your hat on, a little piece of wisdom that you can take away. And he just kind of throws these things in there. So you're going to see this stuff all throughout the book where you're like, it seems like he's going in one direction and he just kind of changes gear for a second and then he kind of gets back to what he's doing. Um, and here he basically says, look, you know, ask God to give you good gifts. But if you're, if you're double-minded, so in other words, if you're playing this game with God where you're like, hey, um, I don't really want you <laughs> to be involved in my life at all until bad stuff happens. You're like, you're like double-minded. You're like, I really think I like God, but I also really like the way I'm living my life right now. So not really sure I want to bring these things together, right? Like I like God, but I want to continue to do this other thing that I really want to keep doing. When you're living double-minded and you then find yourself in a trial, it's not okay to rub the genie bottle, to pretend like you only get four prayers a year, and to save them up until you're in a trial, right? This is the way I think a lot of people live their life. They're like basically like, well, I get four requests of God a year, so I'm going to save them until something bad happens, and then they rub the bottle, and then they ask God to step in and to, to you know, to fix whatever's going wrong, you know, and this, this is like the common thing, like, you know, you'd be like, I didn't study for the test, uh, but here I am, and I need to get an A, so God, would you help me get an A, you know? And you're like, you can't, just ask him if you haven't had him be part. You can't be double-minded. Now, it doesn't mean you can't go to God when you're struggling. You can find single-mindedness in trial where you're saying, like, Jesus is my new reality and I'm, like, barely making it here and I need to, like, live reliant on him every single day. But if you're playing the game, you're not fooling God. He's going to be like, you didn't want me last week in your life. You did whatever you wanted on Friday night and then you came on Sunday and things look great. He's like, you can't do the double-minded thing. That's not a thing for God. And so James just kind of throws it out there. Look, don't be double-minded when you come to God, when you're struggling through this stuff. And then the very last part of this uh, section, he gives an example. He says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, right? But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. 
For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away while they go about their business. You're like, okay, wow. All right. Uh, two things to notice here. This is an example, right? So the first is, he says, believers in humble circumstances, right? If you're a believer, you're called to live in humility. So he says, believers in humble circumstances should take uh, pride in their high position, right? So somebody who's living the way Christ has called us to live, someone who's willing to lay themselves down for others is the person who should take pride in their high position. This is why Jesus says, like, the meek will inherit the earth. Like, the, hum- the ones who are humble are the ones that are going to get blessed. Like, he lays this out, and James brings this idea back, that when we're struggling, it's the believer, it's the one who puts their faith in Jesus, who lives in humble circumstances, who understands that I'm not in control, and I don't need to be. This is not about me. This is about God, and I'm going to go to him when I need him. He's, he takes that person and then compares them to a rich person who takes pride in their own humiliation. Or take, sorry, takes pride in their own wealth. And it, they're the ones that should find humility. And, and they're the ones that will be not necessarily in the same place as the believer. And he says, just keep in mind that all this at the end of the day goes away. Now, I just want you to think about this for a second. Let's say you're not a believer and you're rich, and you are a believer and you're living in humble circumstances. If you're a believer living in humble circumstances, this world, these 80 years that you get here, are the worst section of your entire life. Because God says to us that we persevere through this life, and then we go to heaven, and it is perfect for eternity. So these 80 years, they're the worst time of your life. The struggles and trials that you're dealing with now, you're dealing with just for this time and these will all go away someday when you are in eternity with God forever. But if you don't know Jesus, this, this life is the best time of your entire life. Because it says that after your life is over, that there will be judgment and if you are not in relationship with Jesus, that you will not be in eternity with God forever. And so this section of your life as you deal with trials is the best time that you get. I mean, makes it pretty clear. All of this goes away. Your wealth, whatever you're building, whatever kingdom that you're investing in, whatever thing that you're worshiping, that stuff goes away. The person who's a believer who finds humility in their relationship with God, who struggles through trial in this life with faith, this is the worst time of their life. And it gets better from here. The Bible talks about heaven being a place where these trials don't exist. Where the pain and the suffering, the difficulty that we deal with in this life goes away. Right? We live in this perfection that God intended all along for us. Where there is no physical ailments. There are no tears. There is no brokenness. The relationships are all put back together. Things are as they should be in eternity. That is what we're we're striving for as Christians. That's the thing that we want. We don't look forward to heaven and hide ourselves from this life. We persevere through trial in this life and we reap a reward someday in a place where all of that doesn't exist anymore. That's what, it, that's what it looks like. And I want you to know, throughout Scripture, God calls us to persevere through trial, but He guarantees us, this is the thing that is most guaranteed in all of Scripture, all throughout the entire thing, He guarantees us that he will be with us. You see it all through the Old Testament. You see it all through the New Testament. Jesus' last words, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. 
right? You're not called to do it alone. You get Jesus to walk alongside of you, the Holy Spirit to live within you, and you get a community of people to lean on as you do it. God didn't call us to do this by ourselves. You know, James is writing this to the whole group of believers that are dispersed all throughout the known world. There are little churches popping up all over the place, and those people are living in community and carrying the trials of the people in that church together. Like, not one person was having to deal with them by themselves. He gave them all a community of people to share with. So I want you to understand, we're, we're starting small groups in this church. We're trying to help us find community with other believers because you weren't called to carry the trial by yourself. You were called to share the trial with other people, to find faith in Christ, and then to release that burden to the other people's uh, lives and let them walk alongside and carry it with you. This is what the church was called to do. And this is a God who doesn't leave us when we're in the midst of it. So the question for us is, when we face those trials, where do we go? Do we go to Christ? Are we focused on our faith? Do we go to the community of people that are around us? Or do we go in and do we escape? And do we find things that help us forget and to avoid? Because God wants to bring about perseverance and maturity in our lives. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for showing us what it looks like to live alongside of people who are going through trial for inspiring James to write this and to call us to perseverance, to call us to uh, maturity. God, I pray that this church would become the kind of place where when we deal with trials, we find strength in our faith and we find strength in this community to persevere and to become fully mature. God, as we deal with trials, no matter what they are, we will remember, we will declare that you are good. We will declare, God, that, that you are with us. We will declare that this is the worst it gets and it only gets better from here. And God, we ask as, as we deal with those that we wouldn't feel crushed by those trials, but we would find ways to persevere to maturity. We ask that you would do that in all of us, that you would create a community of people that would love each other and carry these burdens alongside of one another. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.